And then another person would say, do you know there's 331 files in the Library of Congress on this house? Like, I began to go, oh, my stars. Right. And I wrote the Georgia Department of Community Affairs. It used to be the Georgia Historic Preservation Office with just the little bit that I knew and said, could this be significant? You know, is this like something that we need to dive into? And and the short version is, is they wrote me back and they said, yes, actually, it qualifies to be on the National Registry of Historic Places for Art, Women's History, <laughs> and Recreation and Leisure. Right. Yeah, I was like, oh, I mean, like, we inadvertently bought an abandoned national treasure. And it literally is at this stage of the game, like right. now, in the year 2023. From Fiori Communications, it's How I Got Here, a show of inspiring stories from Tallahassee area leaders, business owners, and neighbors, all the challenges, opportunities, inspirations, the twists and turns of life that led them to where they are today. Everyone has a story worth telling, and I am really grateful that we get to bring a few of them to you. I truly have been changed by my conversations with these amazing people, and I'm confident you will be too. I'm Dave Fiore. And in this episode, I speak with Michelle Dean, the executive director of the Pope's Museum and Farm in nearby Cairo, Georgia. Born and raised in Flint, Michigan, Michelle survived a childhood of abuse, poverty, and instability, saved by the generosity of strangers and a strong faith in God. She worked her way through college, sometimes sleeping in her car, before becoming a teacher and school administrator in Tampa. Michelle, her husband Dan, and their oldest two children moved to Tallahassee, where she started homeschooling. She began teaching literature and writing to other homeschoolers while also being a successful entrepreneur and fostering children in distress, which led to two adoptions. In 2018, Michelle and her family made a significant life change to move and fix up an old beat-up house with a pecan field that turned out to be a long-neglected historical treasure. Today, the Pope's Museum is winning awards for its restoration and is a coveted event venue. I started our conversation by asking Michelle how she would describe her childhood. Unstable, like like a graph all over the place. Some months were phenomenal and some months were not at all. And so you never knew what was going to be the day or the month of the season in terms of the emotional and physical and financial environment of my childhood. Okay. Well, let's dig into that a little bit. Let's talk about your family and uh, family dynamics and what created that instability. Okay. Um, so I have four siblings, three brothers and one sister. And um, due to a lot of things that happened in my father's past, uh, he became an alcoholic and, in fact, died a homeless man under a bridge. And so... That happened about 20 years ago, but obviously the pattern of alcoholism and the instability came into that. I can remember going through what were hand-me-down clothes in my closet and finding papers where my dad had gotten fired from General Motors for not showing up. Well, of course, he didn't show up because he was drunk and um, or hungover or whatever, and that was a real pattern. And so these tendencies became more consistent, unfortunately more prolific. And so it also had 
episodes of violence. It was a very unstable. And then when he was sober, it was so much fun. Mm. But so you just really, truly didn't know what it was going to be like. So living with a pit in my stomach all the time because I just didn't know what I was going to be walking into um, at that season. And where were you in the birth order of the kids? Um, I'm the middle child. I have two older brothers and a younger brother and a younger sister. I am the oldest girl. Okay. And so a lot of emotional responsibility comes with that. I am a fixer. I'm a type A. I'm very driven. And so you put all that together, it it definitely has affected who I am. Mm. But for better and worse. Yeah. So when your dad was in a bad place, you felt the responsibility to accommodate that in some way or protect or take well, care of? Well, you know what? No, it was more along for maybe my younger brothers and sister, um, but mainly it's like trying to navigate whatever you got to do to have peace in the house, whatever you got to do to have peace in the house. And so that was unfortunate. Uh, I also knew I needed to control as much as I could control. So my kids would be shaking their heads now if they were here because I'm a clean fiend. I mean, I am a fiend about order and everything has a place and there's a place for everything. Right. And so I think that was part of it because I wanted to control my environment to the best of my ability. Right. And what was your mom's role in all this when the, kind of the chaos of in the instability of your family situation? Um, you know, looking at looking at things now at 56 is a much different viewpoint than when you're in it. As right. a young adult, as a young child, um, I truly believe she was in survival mode, mm. doing the best that she could. Um, so just like we all would, not all of her choices would have been my choices. And but you know what? That I think she was just doing the best that she could in this season that, right. that we were in at that time. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So I know that there were some fi- from what I've read, there was some financial impacts of all this, right? right? I mean, the your dad's inability to keep right. jobs for, right. you know, for, for different reasons. Um, and at one point you depended on help from the church to survive? Yeah. So um, I became a believer when I was four. Like, I don't even remember not being a Christian. Yeah. I always, you know, like, yeah, Jesus is my best friend, still is more than my husband. And I don't find that offensive at all. It's, you know, who I am. Sure. And um, so we did have to leave Flint to escape because he became more violent. And, um, like, truly, truly violent and consistently irrational. So we moved to Illinois for a year. And then we moved to Tampa. Um, That was when I was in ninth grade. Uh, Dave, poverty brings a type of shame that most people just don't understand. Uh, we were the recipients of the canned food drive. I can remember in the high school, the teachers raising money, you know, and people bringing in the cans, the students bringing in the cans. And I would just sit there and know that they, they were going to go to us, Mm. you know, I was trying to act nonchalant about it. Um, never would have gone on any youth retreats in my entire life if somebody didn't sponsor them. In fact, never even thought about it. Um, Just knew it wasn't an option. 
Right. New extracurricular activities were not an option. First of all, because I had no way to get there. Second of all, because they cost money. You know, it costs money to have a baseball glove. It costs money to take dance lessons. Yeah. You know, all these things cost money. So there was never a thought that that was ever going to happen. And uh, one day I went to church because I was a faithful member of a church in South Tampa. I mean, I was the only one in my family who was, but I went. And they were all going to Gatlinburg. And what a great experience. And I'm like, y'all have a great time. And I literally remember the youth pastor coming up and saying, we're going to drive you home. Somebody's paying for you. Mm. You know, go and pack your stuff. And What did that mean to you? um, I was blown away. And then... Like, I had never seen a $20 bill before in my life at all. Seriously? Seriously, never seen one. And how old were you at this point? 14. And never had a pair of jeans. Wow. And so, um, yeah, I can remember going to Gatlinburg and the kids on the bus found— and I I wasn't, like, flamboyant about this because, obviously, I didn't want the whole stinking world to know. And um, they found out I had no money, and they took up a donation. And, like, there was $100, which— I remember freaking out because I had a hundred. You were holding a hundred dollars. I was freaking out. I bet. You know, yeah. And then there was like a part of me that said, "Oh, I should like take this home." And then I'm like, "Screw this! I'm gonna have a really good time." <laughs> I'm gonna get some McDonald's. Uh, you and know have some what? Fun. Yeah. And so that was right. um, that's kind of a, a sliver, a picture of where wow. I came from. So how did that impact? You talked about you know the shame that went along with that. How did that impact your friendships and interactions with kids your age? Um, I was. Thankfully, I was really grounded in the Word of God, and so that whatever the Word of God said about my identity was really and still mm-hmm. is what what I embraced. Um, it was a fight that I mean, it was not like it came naturally. I had to concentrate on it, but I definitely said, just because I'm here now doesn't mean I have to stay here. Right, and that is unquestionably one of my life mottos. Just because I'm here now doesn't mean that I'm going to stay here. Mm -hmm. So I knew education was one of the ways out. I was a great student. I was a great student. Worked my butt off, but I was a great student. And so I said, you know, I can do this. I can go to college. And, you know, part one says there's absolutely no way you're going to go to college. And then there were people, um, like, really, truly who— believed who who God must have just spoke to them because right. you know Helen Faulkner was my science teacher and she would bring me over to her house to rake leaves so that I could have some spending cash and these other teachers arranged for me to write essays so I could enter these scholarship competitions wow. and, and I got scholarships and graduated you know in the top three percent of my class and so went to USF and realized again just because I'm here now doesn't mean I have to stay here. Wow. So a lot of people had your back, were, were looking yes. out for you oh, yeah. along yeah. the way. Yeah. I mean, I like, I can't wait. I hope most of them are in heaven so I can just run up the high neck <laughs> and say, I hope I made you proud. Because obviously right. most of them are, you know, 20 to 50 years older than I am, you mm. know. Right. And like, yeah, and I just want to be an encouragement to other people. Like, you just don't know. You could be rescuing somebody. Like, you could be rescuing somebody. Right. And yeah. yeah, because any good that I do, I'm like, they're a part of it. Right. That's because they rescued me. Right. In the equation here is help of of giving people who wanted to see you do well, mm-hmm. plus your hard work and determination mm-hmm. yes. to make sure it was going to happen and that wasn't wasted. Right. right. Yeah. 
and that was no question for you. Uh, zero. Like, I worked two jobs, and at the time, USF, like, I literally had a hatchback car. Got a scholarship enough to pay for college and to pay for a car. Wow. So I bought, you know, Honda, not a Honda, Toyota Celica, Celica Supra. I loved That's my little car. That's a pretty sweet little car. It was a sweet little car. Yeah. Um, it was a hatchback, and I would sleep in it because I took mm. classes, would go work four to six hours, and then come back and take classes. Well, I was exhausted, and I tried to sleep in the library while I was doing research. And I'm telling you, the, the school, USF library, like I remember them saying, you can't take a nap here. And I'm like— I have to. So I started keeping blankets in my car mm. so I could crash. Um, yeah, I think it's great. Now I'm like, you dead gum right. Like I I did because it had to be done. Right. Now, was your family still in Tampa at this yes. point? Yeah. yeah. But you weren't living. You were sort of living at home? I had to live at home. Right. Yeah. And so, yes, I did. And their life choices were completely different from mine. So you were the kind of oddball as oh, far as sure. what you were doing? For sure. For sure. Um, I, Yeah, that's the understatement. I, <laughs> I tell a nice way to put it is if you can think of a lifestyle that would bring the police. Okay, let me back up, Dave. Mm. I want to be very clear. Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office has been amazing. I was this young woman, and they would escort me home all the time. All the time. They would show up at the grocery store while I was working and take me out to lunch all the time. And it sounds so peculiar, but I, you know what? I, and they even took me out to the range and taught me how to shoot. Okay. Like, Just like shoot. Like, right. right. Certain deputies would do that. Certain deputies. Okay. And they, they were friends for decades later and always acting with the utmost of professionalism. But what made this so crazy is I'm not sure that they weren't just wanting to get in to the activities that were going on. At my house. Oh. You know, I mean, and that would be okay because, right. you know, now I'm married to a retired deputy, you know, that has nothing to do with that. But yeah. 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 But I mean. So they may have known what was going on and saw you as, an, as a way to get. They might have or they might have been just like the other people who said, listen, this is a, to use the starfish metaphor, if you know that starfish story, this mm. is one starfish we can save. Okay. You know, like the beach is covered with starfish, you know, right. and we can't save all of them, but this is one starfish we can save. Yeah. And I think that that was part of it, too. They saw starfish in me that they could save. Hmm. You majored in English education. Yes. Right? So did you know you wanted to be a teacher? Was that a goal of yours? No, I actually was a nursing student and um, took everything but my practicals. And so I was in my— So you were right up to the end. Right up to the end. Final student, final semester about to go and— I realize it might have been a more lucrative career, uh, but— Especially nowadays. Yeah. I, Although I, both are in high demand. Well, I literally, like, realize, what am I doing? I don't even want to do this. Like, I don't even want to do this. And so then I thought I'd be a science teacher because I had all these science credits. Yeah. And I, I definitely one day said, I need to do what I love— and I love speaking, and I love writing, and I love reading, and I love empowering people with the ability to think. And so did a complete change of direction, became an English education major, and loved it. I've always loved it. Okay, so you not only funded a college education, you pretty much funded two, right? Yes, yeah. And in, in my educational career, I did 
you know, I did teach science for a while and okay. taught algebra. And I know that's usually an anomaly to have an English student yeah, is, who loves those math and yeah. science classes at the same time. I just love education, period. There yeah. you go. So. Well, that's good. All right. So when you graduate, you do start teaching, mm -hmm. right? And where did you get your first job? Webb Junior High in Tampa. And then the legislature changed the number of teachers that the state needed. And so that plan got a change. Because there weren't as many needed? There wasn't as many Okay. Needed. They changed the ratio of That's teacher exactly to kids. what they did. That's okay. perfect. That's exactly what they did. All right. So I got a job at Tampa Baptist Academy. Turned out to be a God thing. Dr. Barbara Bodie became my mentor professionally. She's She was awesome then. She's still awesome. I just um, have nothing but respect for her. And she is another one who saw really great things and Looking back, she took some really big risks on this green teacher. I mean, in my first year teaching, I did a writing convention, like all with all this, all the schools from like across four. I mean, you counties. put one together. I put one together. Okay. Rented a huge um, campground. Yeah, brought in speakers. I mean, I don't even know how I did. Like, I don't. I wouldn't know how to do that now. I don't think you know. And <laughs> right. and I did all this. I definitely had Energizer Bunny. Um, resources and the right. energy level, and then created a very smooth curriculum from 6th through 12th for the English department. So I became the English department head and then okay. became the assistant principal and started having kids. <laughs> so was administration, was that, I mean, did you enjoy that part? I love it. Yeah? I loved it. I did. I loved making policy. I loved presenting the advantages and disadvantages of policy. Because whether it's a family or in big government, every every decision has advantages and disadvantages. Yeah. And people don't always want to look at it that way. But that is, you have to say if that's the right decision right. based upon the advantages and disadvantages. Sure. So I love that side. Okay. So you mentioned you're having babies. So I assumed you're married by this point. Yes. Okay. No. So yes. tell us about your husband and okay. uh, started having kids. This, tell us about this little part of your life now. Um. So, Not little part, big part of your Big life. part. Yeah. Uh, I was driving to go to the same church I'd always gone to and kept hearing God say, you need to go to this church. That's really close. Uh, and I mean, probably like six to eight months. Okay. I was like, why would I do that, God? It's, it's not where I go to church. It's not my denomination, and it's not in my life plan. So finally, to be honest with you, if I'm being totally honest with God and the audience, um, I really just, <laughs> wanted, really just wanted to like stop the harassment, which is what I felt. Fine, I will go to church there. Right. You know? and, um, that little voice every time yes, you drove by. every just time. Just make it stop. Seriously, every time I went by. <laughs> this is where you're going to go to church. No, I'm not, God. You know? So I went, and— shockingly decided I'd go back that night as well. Well, what I did not know is that my now husband of 33 years had come down from the orchestra pit because he was playing in the orchestra and gotten with the ushers and pulled my visitor's card out. It's very sly, very smooth. So he saw you. Yes. And, and found your card. Yes. And, and literally like said he knew that I was the woman for him right then. Wow. And chased me down the parking lot and pretended that he was on the church greeting committee, <laughs> and he had my card, and he was here to make me feel welcome, blah, 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 blah. Wow, well, that's pretty slick. Oh, it was so cute. It's like so cute. <laughs> um, and to be 
cliche. The rest is history. He right. just cracked me up. So we dated for six months. I know it's not very long for some people, but, you know, it is. I mean, what... you were both. He was pretty certain anyway. Yes. Did I he guess. have to win you over? Or? Oh, for sure. Okay. For sure. Because, honestly, I was going to graduate from college and move back to Michigan because, remember, I love snow. Right. So, that so was... you didn't want the distraction? No. No. You have stuff to get done. Yes. And he was very blunt, too. He said on our very, very first date, you need to know that this is where I serve God. This is where I go to church. And if you're the wife that I think you're going to be, our first date, <laughs> this is where we will worship. <laughs> Okay. Well, first of all, I thought it was incredibly sexy that he was so focused. Okay. Okay. Can I use that word? Sure. I don't know, you no, know? sexy's good. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And <laughs> it just cracked me up that he was so certain. Yeah. And I was like, you don't know what you're getting into. I'm seriously high maintenance, you know? Right. And I am high maintenance. And so, yeah, he would be saying amen, you know, if he was here. So, uh, your husband the, is Dan. My husband is Dan. Okay. And so we got married in 1990 and we had our first son in 1993. And then we had another son in 1996. So I have two adult sons. Right. And we, his company, like he, short version is, is that he lost his job. And that was a very challenging year for us because unemployed for nine years, we call it a year of purgatory because. I couldn't work anymore. The doctor had said, you need to stop for a little while. And I had a three-year-old and a newborn. And, of course, just the daycare would have taken the salary anyway. Right. So we ended up in Tallahassee. So the church that he was never going to leave, mm. circumstances changed with your family. Right. that made him need to come to right. make a change somewhere. Right. right. So why Tallahassee? How did you end up up here? Well, um, his family is from Gulf County. So we would mm -hmm. drive you know, and visit his family the, these first six years that we were married. And we would both say, I think we're going to end up in Tallahassee. And we both would chuckle, why? You know, we're totally happy in Tampa. And so when circumstances changed, we thought, okay, maybe this is what we're supposed to do, is do what we thought we were going to do the first six years of our marriage. I mean, it's almost like God had to say, you're not listening to me, so I'm going to, like, shut down some doors and make it so you got to go. Right. So we ended up here. And, I mean, we lived here for, my goodness, 25, a long time, 25 years. Yeah. About, yeah. All right. And so you, how much longer after you moved here did you have your other children? Was that immediate? I don't know. Oh, their, no. Okay. Their you don't age, know the ages. I don't know the age spans. Okay. So, you know, I'm here in Tallahassee and Danny eventually landed as a, as a deputy in Leon County. Okay. And I'm homeschooling my kids. I've homeschooled for 29 years because I definitely believe that education begins all the time. Life is school and you are, you know, you have a lifestyle of getting an education. Did you always know you wanted to homeschool? Yes. Oh, yeah. From, from yes. the time even before? Uh, the minute I had my first child. You knew that's what you were Yeah. In do. fact, um, the, the administrator who I mentioned earlier, she was like, I, I why would you leave? You're being vetted to take my job. And I was like, there's always going to be eighth graders. There's always going to be, there'll always be more, but I've got one shot at this parenting, one shot. Mm -hmm. And I'm determined to do the best that I can do. Plus, I was very, I don't know, I don't want somebody else watching my kid take his first step and teaching him to read. I wanted, I wanted it all. I wanted it all. So I did that. Um, we came up here. We were at the dinner table. And that would be Dan and I and our two sons, and they are probably eight and seven. Okay. And now, respectfully, we are 
a Caucasian family. And I say that because we both at the same time saw a vision of somebody, of a little girl, a mixed race girl at the dinner table. Now, we're thinking we're done. You have to know in the conversations, we're like, we're done. Right. And I look at Dan, I'm like, somebody's missing. Like, we're supposed to have another kid. And Dan, now we know, but we didn't know then that he was like, yeah, we're supposed to have a little girl. And then I'm like, yeah, um, do you see a mixed race girl like in your spirit? And he goes, yes, I think we're supposed to adopt. Hmm. And so um, we became foster parents and did every part of it as in we did we helped parents work through their case plans and be reunited with their children. We did respite, and we adopted too. So, just want to stop there for a second. What was that process like? I know it's hard to foster for multiple reasons because sometimes they're in tough situations. You get bonded with them depending on how long you mm-hmm. have them. I mean, what what was that process like for you and Dan? We did newborn babies, and. That means that their parents haven't had a chance to physically abuse them. So they were drug babies. I mean, like mm-hmm. that's that's what they were. Okay. They were drug babies. And they scream a lot because they're going through detox. Right. So that was very, very difficult. Physically, incredibly, and mentally, incredibly difficult. So I had an outstanding family doctor at the time. She was our doctor for like 25 years. And... We got even closer. She was outstanding. And one day she was like, just bring the baby in and then go walk outside in the parking lot for five minutes. You need right. to have five minutes where you don't hear this child scream. Because you can't change what's going on inside her body. Mm-mm. Right. So that was really difficult. Um, was it difficult to reunite? I don't want to be too intense, but I've had people within the church say, oh, I could never do that. That would be too difficult for me to reunite the babies with the birth parents and I'm challenging the church I didn't realize that the Lord called us to an easy life I'd like to know where that's scripturally right and so I don't want to was it easy it was definitely not easy was it worth it yes and there is such a difference like I know we did the right thing right Um, in fact one child in particular I was so proud of our family. Like, you know, sometimes they're just shining moments. And we reunited this child with her birth family. And we were mourning for sure. We were mourning. But we went to Publix. We got a cake. We got a bunch of balloons. We brought that child back to her birth family. And we had a party. Right. You know, to celebrate. Because that was the goal. That was the goal. Right. And it wasn't about us. Right. And so. um, That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I want to tell you, we cried the whole way home. Yeah. Okay, like being real, we cried the whole way home. Sure. But, yeah, that was like we did good, and I was really proud of the way my family, right. you know, supported another person walking through a hard time. Yeah. So, yeah, and then we got to Lisa, and that was— But she she was going to be a keeper. She, oh, yeah. Yeah, we knew from the beginning. So um, that was the plan with her? Yes. So you this, fostered her first? Yes. Well, the mother surrendered, and so okay. um, that was— I mean, legally, she was only fostered for a couple of months. And then we got um, 14 months later. Now, again, we're thinking we're done. Because you only imagined one, one person at the table. Right? One, <laughs> right. And and we were doing respite, which is really where you 
serve other foster parents and give them two or three days. Right. You know, so we were fine with that. We lived in a very small, very, very small ranch house. And really, Dave, baby stuff takes a lot of room. Mm. A lot of room. Yep. And we have this teeny tiny car and this teeny tiny house. And um, and the powers that be called on December 15th, I remember very clearly, and said, hey, can you take one? And I was like, this, like no, we have no place to put anything. And it's a little boy. And all I have is girl stuff in I have a 14-month-old, you know, and an 11 and a third. There's no way. Right. And then three months, three hours later, got the same phone call again. And I said the same thing. We have no room. We have no stuff. There's no way we can make this happen. It was the same person asking the same thing? Yes. Yeah. And then the third time, same day, exact same thing. And finally, my second son looked at me, God bless him, and said, really, Mom? A week before Christmas, and there's a newborn boy who has no place to live, and you're going to tell him we have no room. Hmm. Really? Guilty as charged. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, we'll take him. And it was supposed to be temporary. And 14 years later, um, wouldn't change it for anything. Yeah. You know, wouldn't change everything. So now I have two adults and two children in the home. Sorry. That's awesome. It's high maintenance. That's what it is. I know people say, oh, they must, they say, oh, they must, you know, give you lots of energy. And I'm like, no, they make you tired. That and being 56, you know. Hey, everybody. Just a quick reminder that this episode is brought to you by Fiori Communications. Just like people, every business has a story to tell. And we've been helping our clients tell their story since 2001. Because who you are as a company is just as important as what you do. To learn more about how telling your story can make a difference in your business, visit FioriCommunications.com. Thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. So during the process of homeschooling yourself Mm -hmm. and as your boys were getting older and you realized that there may have been some deficiency in local homeschool opportunities for for writing. And speech and some of those some of those things. So, you decided it might be a good idea to offer that to other homeschool well, families. Right. Is that right? Yes. So, how did you come to that realization, and how did you make that happen? Well, in Florida law, you one of the ways that you stay a legal homeschool family is to see a licensed teacher once a year, and right. so uh, that would be me. Like I still am, and so I, when people would say, "What do you do?" I would say, "I'm a homeschool consultant." And so I realized, like an epiphany, that writing is the elephant in the homeschool movement. Mm. Everybody knows you need it. Nobody knows how to do it. That combined with the cliche, the cobbler's children have no shoes, that would be my own kids, I realized I need to do this for my own. And so one of my life expressions is why not? Why not see if there's an interest? And I started uh, beyond my expectations, have had a phenomenal journey. Still, I'm on it again. I mean, I took a couple years off. And so did I writing and public speaking and debate and literature. And So uh, you were right. There was a need for oh, that. Oh, huge. That like, parents were like, yes, 
please. Yes, please. Yeah. Yes. And so it is absolutely, anytime you get a platform, it's a privilege. Mm. But when you get a platform to influence a generation, it is a privilege. Mm. And plus, I, I tell my students, I mean, I, I tell them at my funeral, you guys are going to come with like poster boards marked out of little Mrs. Deanisms. And one of them for me is I refuse to be a part of raising a generation of ignorant voters. And it's okay if you're ideologically different than me. Just don't be an ignorant voter. Right. And so— Know what you believe or what you yeah. stand for. Oh, yeah. And I would—I mean, you know what? All the time. Um, do you have evidence for that? And the kids are like, you're going to make me prove it? I'm going to make you prove it. I said, because you're going to need to know where you're coming from right? and know how to read and think. I just know that we need a generation of thinkers. And, yeah, writing is a way to teach kids to think. So that's yeah. what I do. So you had classes, or now you do again, I do and again. They're, they're filled up, and you know, kids kids were coming from all around the area oh, yeah. to because um, explain how that works a little bit in with homeschooling. That you know, some people think homeschooling is the family sits around the kitchen table and never moves, but obviously there are other resources. People like Correct. you who have right. specialties, like Terry Hall and her Correct. science, right? You know. People teach certain subjects that, we, especially when you get into middle school and high school Correct. years, that parents don't always feel equipped to help with. So there are people like you in the community to provide those services. Correct. Um, you just articulated that really well. So currently, Monday mornings, parents drop off their kids, although now it's so it's so nifty because now I have parents sit in on the class. I have grandparents sit on the class. And so it's a wonderful thing and I teach like a year of British literature and composition and a year next year world literature and composition and then the third year American literature and composition. So they're getting the meat and bones that they need to be young adults and to be successful young adults and they see it being done. It's a great experience for the kids. The parents definitely appreciate having that proverbial box checked that they know yeah. that needs to be done and they don't feel like they're equipped to do it. And for me, I mean, I feel very vivacious and alive when I'm teaching. Like, I yeah. have so much fun. I'm like, I can't believe I get paid to do this much fun. When you were doing this kind of the first time around, mm -hmm. you weren't just doing that. You were also an entrepreneur in a different way when, when you were working for Nest, right? Right. And so tell us about that and how that came about and what what that is. Okay. Um, so Nest is a company that made animated stories of historical heroes such as Harriet Tubman and Louis Pasteur, and they were all character-based. And... They also have a New Testament and Old Testament series. Well, what happened is, is that I became a customer and I saw my son imitating George Washington crossing the Delaware. I saw my son imitating Jesus and Peter and other people's kids were imitating the Teenage Ninja Turtles. <laughs> okay. And I started like selling them right. and... Found I was really good at it because I was so passionate about and you wanted them to have different heroes. I did, and right. and and did that for years. Um, it was a great season. Traveled across the country, made radio broadcasts, did conventions, def top seller in the continent. So people would buy series of videos, oh, right? Like or 
or respectfully if they bought from me they probably bought everything the company made (laughs) (laughs) well because like oh so you don't want the new testament you don't want your kids to learn about jesus let's go ahead and talk like you know right or um do you see yourself having your kids imitate because i had so many stories about my own kids doing these amazing things not because i was all that great because it was what they were watching Mm -hmm. and um so i did that for a long time became a sales director when when um that season ended I had 11 states under my jurisdiction and like won so many trips and became their sales manager for the company. One okay. of them. I liked it too. Yeah. So that was a lot of fun for a season. It was. Right. Mm-hmm. For, for a long six, time. Six, seven years. Okay. Yeah. And, yeah. And then um, it was literally when we knew that we were waiting on Lisa okay. and I had, I mean, I literally took newborn babies all across the country. And that was, then I thought, okay, this can't continue. Like, I physically can't do this anymore. I I released that position, which you have to understand, that was like my baby. I built it up from my first sale to 11 states and and literally being in the top four in the, you know, Canada, United States, and Mexico. Like, there was a sense of accomplishment that came with that because it's not like I went to school to sell. Right. And so... Yeah, but um, now it's a good decision. But to to change, to literally pivot and do something I never in my wildest dreams thought I'd be doing, that would be the story of that. And you were also volunteering during that time, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. And what kind of organizations were you involved with? Well, I taught a lot of classes at um, Tallahassee Bible College. It used to be called the Center for Biblical Studies yeah. here um, and loved it and always super active in my church, sang on the praise and worship team. I mean— Every church I've ever been in forever. Led right. worship for years um, at some Tallahassee churches and ended up director of Christian education and then ended up director of women's ministries. So definitely administrative right. positions. Building something out of nothing yeah. is not – obviously there must have been something there because I'm not God. I can't build out of nothing. <laughs> right. But, you know, right. making things happen. All right. So you're – Cranking along, super busy, involved with life, family, teaching, homeschooling. And I don't want to say out of nowhere because I'm sure something happened. You decided to make a significant life change, change. move to Georgia, and take on a pretty significant fixer-upper. So what got that whole process started? Um, Well, I was... About to go away for a three-day women's retreat, and um, where I was the keynote. And the reason why that's important is you would have thought that I would have been concerned about the three-day event. Right, that would be your focus. That would be my focus. Great, and uh, it, it was, and I was so chill. And well, and so I'm telling you, I heard God say, "You know, it's really great that you're doing so great, and you feel so good about all this." Meanwhile, your husband right there in the bed with you is withering and needs a change. Uh, I was like, oh, my goodness. And I realized, yeah, what you just said was right. I was just cranking. And um, Danny was working at the sheriff's office, and it just was time for him to do something different. It was just totally time. He'd been there 17 years. It was time for him to do something different. Yeah. And— Kudos to every law enforcement officer out there of 
um, all of our correction officers and everything. So I spent those three days really praying and got this wild idea and asked Dan, how do you feel about this idea? And the idea was that we take the equity in our Tallahassee home and we buy a fixer-upper and then we retire early. Okay. That so was, you're thinking a little farmhouse somewhere? Yes. Something. Actually, that's exactly what we looked for. Okay. We, made, we um, um, That was it. Needs a little property. Uh, it's have okay. some chickens. Yeah, uh, truly. And we have <laughs> yeah. chickens, you okay. know? Yeah. And so he was so excited. Well, so he, I said, well, it might take a while for this to happen. How far are you willing to travel while you're still with the sheriff? And he said, I'll travel an hour. So I literally put a dot and found every place within the equity in our home budget and, and traveled. You would be amazed. It's like Bainbridge. It's like Madison. Right. It's like it's so much farther than I envisioned. And found the found several, but found this one that all I can tell you is the facts said run. It was and like we kept drawing back to it. And it was crazy. I'd been abandoned for years. Was, um, so describe it. What What are you looking at? Okay. What am I looking at at the moment, right? right. Not what it is now. Not now. What, okay. what were you looking at? Well, um, it had been used as a dog kennel illegally for fighting dogs. So, oh, wow. Um, yeah. And then probably the renters were evicted. And then it had been abandoned for years. And there were clothes and cardboard stuffed up the chimney. And um, the roof leaked. Obviously, it smelled putrid. And uh, it was... Sounds delightful. Uh, it was horrific. And that's just the act- like the house. The grounds were incredible, but they were overgrown. I mean, because nobody had been there for years. So it hadn't been mowed for years. Brambles, completely covered crepe myrtles. Like, um, but what we saw was different. Yeah. I mean, like my husband and I are both right. I tell people, I saw the vision of what it could be. And Danny saw the vision of what it was. And we were both right. He saw, oh my gosh, it has original 1904 knob and tubing wiring. The whole house has to be rewired. He saw cast iron pipes. The whole house had to be replumbed. He saw the New York. Like he saw the facts. Is he a handy guy? Yeah, he's handy. Yeah, he, like so he, he knows how to do a lot well, of that. Well, yeah, but if it was big, like rewiring the house and stuff, we did sure, get a Sure, I mean, that needs an electrician. Right. right. Um, so, but he saw the work. Okay. And I saw, pulled back that nasty carpet and saw what we now know, 1854 hardwood flooring and arches and like five arches and a split staircase and a balcony made out of sewing machine parts. You know, like, I mean, like, like and I just thought, oh, my goodness, this place is, like, amazing. And Dan's like, this place is a lot of work, and we need to get out of here. I'm like, it's got a pecan grove. We can sell pecans. And it's got a guest cottage, which was just as bad as the larger house was. So you're still looking at it as a place to potentially live. Oh, for sure. Just your house. For sure. Right. For sure. Raise my family here. And look, there's a whole wing in the back. I mean, wing is way too glorified of a word. And there's a bedroom in the back of the house where the kids can be separated from you so that when you're sleeping— because you're still working, you know, with the sheriff's office, they're not going to bother you because we are definitely, like, a lot of people in the house. Always have been a lot right. of people in the house. So that is what I saw, and that's probably how I sold it to Danny. Um, and he was right. There's a ton of work now. 
but he bought into the vision. He did. Actually, we turned, he came, we, he said, I can't do it. He said, I can't do it. And I said, okay. And I said, well, then we're going to walk away from our earnest money. And he said, yes. And I said, okay. And so he literally said, let's just take one, one more trip out there. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay. You know, and he's walking. I'm telling you, this was the funniest thing. And like, he's walking, he's saying, we're going to do this, this, and this, but we'll never do it. Oh, we're going to do this and this and this, but we're not going to do that. And I, mean, I stopped him and said, look, God is not up and down, up and down, and neither are you. So land the plane, dude, because I can't deal with <laughs> this, one. you know? And, right. he, and he said, I think we're supposed to do this. And so he said, we're all in. And so we did not walk away from our earnest money, and we ended up purchasing. You, so you buy the house. We buy the house. Did you know anything about its historical significance? Um, the real estate agent, who is you know now one of my friends, like he alluded to it, but it's he said it's got some history with it, and it's pretty important in this community. But it, like that's all I that's all I remember. Like literally, is it's got some history to it. I okay. was like, okay, that's cool. I love historical stuff. You know, I taught American history. I'm all about it. Bring it on. Right. And never knowing what it was, but we we always purchased it thinking that we were going to raise our family. Okay. That was what the plan was. So what actually happened? (laughs) Okay, this is where it gets fun. Okay. People started telling me things on the street I'd go to the library. And where, where are we talking about? Cairo, Sorry. Georgia. This is in Cairo. This is in Cairo. Okay. Um, 45 minutes north of here. And, oh, you're the one who bought the old Pope's place. And I'm like, it's got a name? Check that out. You know? And they're like, yeah, it's known as Pope's Museum. I was like, okay. And then somebody would say, you know, there's a file in the library in it. I'm like, get out of town. Oh, look. And... Like, do you know the Smithsonian Magazine wrote an article on the artist? And then another person would say, do you know there's 331 files in the Library of Congress on this house? Like, I began to go, oh, my stars. Right. And I wrote the Georgia Department of Community Affairs. It used to be the Georgia Historic Preservation Office with just the little bit that I knew and said, could this be significant? You know, is this like something that we need to dive into and and the short version is, is they wrote me back and they said, yes, actually, it qualifies to be on the National Registry of Historic Places for Art, Women's History, <laughs> and Recreation and Leisure. Right. Yeah, I was like, oh, I mean, like, we inadvertently bought an abandoned national treasure. And it literally is at this stage of the game, like right. now, in the year 2023. All right. So how does that change your mindset and focus as far as restoring and bringing, you know, you're not just making it livable and better. Now you're, now you're in some kind of restoration process, right? right? right. So what did that look like? Well, um, we had to make a decision. First of all, is it our national treasure? And if it's truly a national treasure, then it belongs to the people. So we're not going to live in it anymore. Well, um, we live in the back. Okay. Okay. And um, I mean, we, Sometimes we live in the cottage, but we live in the back a lot. And so we went to a lawyer and said, I think we need to become a nonprofit organization. So we did. And because using the explanation, we knew we were going to have to restore the historic floors. And we knew we were going to have to do the electricity. Like there were things that are in your house that 
Like yeah. we have to keep up just like you do. But there is a hundred foot long World War II memorial that literally is known across the world. I know that now. I didn't know that then. And um, it cost a lot of money to restore it, to light it up, to preserve it. There's a Red Cross memorial to the World War One On the property. On the property. There's a lot more artwork that, again, like it was there, but A, it was so covered with brambles. And then second of all, it was in such bad, bad, horrific shape that I didn't know the significance of it. And so we became a nonprofit organization. Okay. And we started dividing up, okay, this is what the deans are taking care of. This is what the nonprofit's taking care of. Right. You know, and applied to be on the National Registry of Historic Places. And let me go ahead and tell you, it was too funny because they, I was on the phone with the state authorities and they said, well, are you comfortable writing and researching? <laughs> and I thought, oh my golly, this is like my destiny. Yeah. And they said, would you be comfortable speaking before the legislature? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so, right. yeah, I started that journey, which we officially were placed on the National Registry April of last year, so not even a year ago. That's awesome. um, Congratulations. Also, yeah, it That's is, very cool. I did not know what a huge deal that was. I thought if your yeah, place no, that, was old enough, it qualifies. Yeah. Not true. Right. It's a, it was. So you restored paint colors, textures, interior stuff. I mean, you tried to make it as close as yes. you could. Yeah, we actually were given the state of Georgia's highest award for historic preservation last year. And in November, the National Society of Daughters of the American Revolution, the National Society, like the top dog, right. gave us their highest endorsement for historic preservation. And they inducted the artist, Laura Pope Forrester, into the National Hall of Fame. And Georgia has her in their Hall of Fame. Wow. So all this has happened in a couple of years. And it's been quite the journey. But yes, huge historic preservation. Right. So... I imagine that took some research on your end because you just don't naturally know how to restore a house to restore it to what it was before. Right. So how how did you do that? Well, I, I'm sure that if the people at the Department of Historic Preservation were here, they would say she drove us crazy with questions, you know, <laughs> because I knew nothing. Right. I knew nothing. Well, I who knew, would? And I knew nothing about running a nonprofit. You know, and I'm still homeschooling. You know, I'm still got laundry to wash. I'm still trying to figure out life, like what everybody else does in life. So what was the purpose of the nonprofit? To raise money? To raise money and to get grants and to get grants so that we could do events there. Like we've done the um, Southern Shakespeare Company that is here in Tallahassee. Yeah. They've worked with us and we've done um, production out there. Okay. And we do community events. We have a big Christmas festival. We've got things scheduled for the future. And you can't do that without, like, like you wouldn't open up your home to 300 people. Right. Right. Strangers. Well, that's what happened. It'd be a bit crowded. Too. Yeah. And that's what happened on December 15th. Like, we had 300 people, you know. Yeah. And we got it because we had a lot of sponsors, including the Georgia Council for the Arts, because okay. we did an arts festival. Okay. And so that's what the nonprofit was. Not only could we not restore the artwork that was there, it's just cost prohibitive. So who is Laura Pope Forrester and kind of real quickly, what is her story? Okay. So she lived in South Georgia in Cairo and she was married in 1894 and she created the number one tourist attraction in South Georgia. And she did it by creating an outdoor art environment where she created statues 
showcasing the accomplishments of women. They're not all women, but the majority of her work was statues of women and murals. And she did it to say, like, women are an important part of American culture. Yeah. And she did it in a time when she didn't have the right to vote. They yeah, I was going to say that's a little before her time. Oh, wait. Like, that's why, that's literally why we're on the National Registry. Mm-hmm. I mean, she had a checking account with just her name on it when it was illegal for her to have a checking account. Mm-hmm. It was illegal for her to sign a contract. Like, they were, it wasn't illegal. They just weren't, right. they were like, didn't null. recognize Yeah, that's right. right. And so she kind of like had the same expression about life that I do. Like, why not? Why, why not? And it, literally, I have postcards. From the 40s, like the Pope's Museum postcards where she, it yeah. was this huge tourist attraction. Right. And now it's becoming a huge tourist attraction again. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about that for a second. What is it? What is the house now? What are the experiences visitors okay. can have and what draws people to the house today? Okay. You can visit. We You need to go to Pope's Museum and like look at the number and call and make an appointment. Okay. So how do people get to that? Pope'sMuseum.org. Okay. Pope'sMuseum.org. Right. Okay, and we also have a Facebook page. You know, and it's and, not a Pope Museum. That would be a whole different that's thing. That's right. This is not the Catholic Pope. This is, that's her last name. <laughs> right, right. Okay, and so they can call me up. They can make a tour. We have tours all the time. We're a bed and breakfast. We're a wedding venue. We're a retreat venue. We just had nine middle school boys stay with us. We do everything you can think of. Like, if you were to grab a group of your staff and do a leadership retreat, yes. If you just wanted an hour to be inspired by this amazing woman's story, um, yes, we do that. Okay. Okay. All right. So this is something that you and Dan are doing together? Is is Dan involved in the day-to-day running of this in any way? Oh, yeah. Or your kids? Or is, oh, is yeah. it a, it's All a the family above. thing? It's a family thing. Okay. okay. So it, that's a great question because when we work with people, I make sure they know that. Some... So far, thank you. Thank you. I'm grateful that we've only had one client who is not comfortable with that because I do share with them that it is a husband and wife and family run adventure. Yeah. Um, the nonprofit, of course, we have a board of directors that guides all of our decisions. What is there not to be comfortable with about it being run by a family? Um, they don't want the kids working with us. Oh, okay. Okay. And so I'm like, okay, so when we do a concert— like my children wearing their Pipes Museum T-shirts and their jeans are going to be the ones emptying the trash, you know, and they direct traffic. Right. Okay. And so they're, and they're like, well, we really don't want any children. Like, I'm not going to send them away. Right. You know, well, I guess and, that's their choice. Right. And I respectfully say, I appreciate that. I don't think we're the venue for you. Um, now they're not up in any of the activities or anything that, you know, they do the job and then they're, um, well, yeah. Out, yeah. I mean, they, unless they get invited to, you know, teach a dance at a wedding, right. and then they're like all about it. <laughs> you know, then they're all about it. So Danny's the property manager. Okay. And so he makes m- most of the decisions about how things get done. And I guess I would say I make the decisions about what gets done, but he definitely can say that that can't be done. Right. So it's real good. All right, Michelle, looking back, what is the one thing or person that has changed or altered the trajectory of your life to this point? Um, there is a woman named Grace Stallings. Uh, she doesn't know it. Like, she wouldn't know to this degree. But when I was at the end of my rope, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know if it was worth it. I don't have a clue how I'm going to do the next project. 
she showed up and she is so joyful and so vivacious. And she brought a carload full of people just to show off what had been going on in her small town. And mm. she boosted me so much that she re-energized me and said, okay, I can do this again. Wow. And she's done that several times since then, but that time. So she's one of your neighbors in Cairo. Well, she lives in Cairo, but okay. she lives like five miles away. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And, um, yeah, that would, I don't, right at this season of my life, I would say, Grace, like you have no idea when I wanted to quit, you were like, you can do this. So that was great. That's very cool. Mm-hmm. All right. Final question. The podcast is named how I got here. So we've talked about how you got to this point in your life. Where do you think here may be for you in three to five years from now? Okay, so I have to tell you, I listened to the podcast, and I know this question was coming. And so, <laughs> yeah, not a surprise. Uh, you know, and I'm like, okay, Michelle, what's the story? And I, I think right now, truly for me, it is to to not stop because I don't know how to do that, but to just rest. Like there's a season, Dave. Like winter is a season where the roots get deeper, and they get ready to bloom again and so I need to be okay to rest and get stronger in my roots so that I can get ready to bloom again I don't know where this I don't know where I'm gonna bloom I mean I'll be a post museum unless you know some some amazing thing happens you know but yeah so that's where I'm at right now is look at nature and learn from it you don't always have to bloom Sometimes you let some leaves go, and sometimes you rest, and then you get ready to rebloom. Thanks for listening to the show. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It really does make a difference. Thanks to my amazing staff at Fiori Communications who pick up the slack while I'm working on these podcasts, and to Troy Bloom for composing our theme music. You can hear more of Troy's creations on Facebook and Instagram at Troy Bloom Music. To connect with the podcast or suggest a future guest, follow us on social media or email us at podcast at fioricommunications.com.